0: Good morning. Welcome to Parkway Church. If you have a Bible, go ahead and uh, open to 1 Corinthians 15. I'm going to uh, try not to cough. Got the uh, post-COVID uh, sinus infection, but we'll be in verses 12 through 19. As you turn there, I want to tell you about a conversation that took place over my uh, dinner table a couple of weeks back. <clears throat> we were sitting around and uh, having dinner, and I asked my daughter Larkin... I said, what's something that you like about your brother Cannon? So she looked at him and uh, she replied, I like that he plays with me and uh, I like that he's super cute. So it was a, a really sweet thing for her to say. And then I looked at my son and I said, Buster, that's what I call him, Buster, what's something that you like about Sissy? And his response was, her body. And I thought that is a really weird answer. You're going to need counseling. Uh, But since I was studying for 1 Corinthians 15, the more I thought about it, I actually realized it really wasn't a bad answer. Now, everything in our culture, our our American culture, even our evangelical culture today, has trained us to think that what really matters, uh, what really matters, who we really are, our deepest reality, our deepest identity, it isn't our body, it's our spirit. It's our soul. It's our personality, our thoughts and our feelings. Who we are (laughs) isn't necessarily material. It isn't physical. It's ethereal. It's immaterial. It's just spiritual. You see that all over the place in culture today. You see that in conversations about gender identity, right? That, That your biological genetic makeup, that isn't the real you. That you're a confluence. You're a confluence of your thoughts and desires and feelings and so forth. And so It doesn't really matter what science says about your body or or what sex you were assigned at birth. That doesn't matter. Gender is just this construct, and I'm the contractor, and I'm tasked to build it myself. Or as Jared mentioned in his sermon last week, when we go to a funeral, you'll often hear someone say, they'll look at the body in the casket, and they'll say, that's not Uncle Ted. He's in a better place now. As if the body is really just this kind of ir- uh, this big irrelevant skin suit, or, or you see this dichotomy in, in, in the spread of things like virtual church, church in the meta. There's a church actually being uh, built right down the road that offers online services where you can do absolutely everything virtually. What's happening there? Where there's this divorce of the body from the soul, as if those are are, are, are intended to be disconnected. There's a dichotomy there. What really matters is spiritual. It's ethereal. It's not physical. It doesn't really matter if you gather with others physically. You can uh, virtually gather. It doesn't matter if you actually can taste and hold and touch and smell the elements of communion. You can do so virtually. You can even get baptized virtually at some of these churches. So this is all (coughs) all over the place in our culture. Our culture has trained us to divorce our bodies from our souls in regards to our identity and our worth and our value and so forth. We think that who we really are and what we really matter what really matters about us is our souls or our spirits. Even the songs we sing are oftentimes about how we might fly away to our eternal home in the clouds where we live as, you know, little baby angels wearing diapers and stuff. Or even in our evangelism, what do we stress? We talk about Jesus coming to save what our souls. And yes and amen to Jesus coming to save our souls and our minds and our spirits and our wills and our emotions, but he also came to save our bodies. And in our text today, we'll, we'll see this importance of the body, the importance of the physical world as we consider the indispensability of the resurrection for Christian hope. Not only the resurrection of Christ, yes and amen, but also our own as well so let's pray and then we'll dive into the text together <clears throat> ask you first just to pray for yourself do this every time that i preach just want it to ask you you know the things that you're coming in here struggling with you know or you're distracted and so would you ask the lord to give you an undivided heart and mind this morning to actually hear and heed his word And then we pray something similar for those around you as well. And then lastly, would you pray for me? In particular, yes, pray for boldness, courage, all those kinds of things. But in particular, just for my cough, I, that that wouldn't be a distraction. So, Father, we gather together today with hope and expectation that you would speak to us through your word, that you would enlighten our hearts and our minds, that we might see the glory of your word, that we might consider the beauty of the resurrection of your son and our own future resurrection, and that might instill in us in our hearts hope, that we might be a people who are marked by that hope, that we would not buy into the lies of the world that bifurcate the body and the soul, but that we might recognize that you've created us to be embodied souls and that those are not intended to be divided and so we love you We pray for your help today in Christ's name Amen look at 1st Corinthians chapter 15 verse 12 It says now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead let's begin with a little bit of context here We've, we've said this just about every week that uh, that Corinth was a, a hot mess, to use a, a, a modern colloquialism. It's the poster child. If you were to write a book called Nine Marks of an Unhealthy Church, this would be it. There's sexual morality, there's greed, there's pride, there's drunkenness, uh, there's abuse of spiritual gifts, and if that wasn't bad enough, apparently some people are even denying the resurrection. They're saying there is no resurrection of the dead. So. What do they mean by that? When they're denying the resurrection, what do they mean by that? And there's a lots of, uh, of theories out there. I'll give you a few and then tell you what I think is actually most likely. First is the view that some of the Corinthians were denying any sort of post, uh, post-mortem afterlife existence. They were just uh, denying uh, life after death uh, uh, completely. In other words, they're promoting this form of annihilationism. You die, and then there's nothing a- after that. And that was certainly pretty popular in Greco-Roman culture. For instance, uh, Epicurean philosophers taught that the soul could no longer exist after the dissolution of the body. In fact, there was a, uh, I thought <laughs> this was interesting. There was a tombstone that had an inscription on it. I can't read uh, Latin, so I think we're going to put it up on the screen. Yeah, I don't I don't know how to pronounce that. I can't pronounce Latin. But non-fui-fui, non-sum, non-desidero, or whatever. It it means, I was not, I was, I am not, I am free from wishes. And this was so common, this this tombstone inscription was so common in parts of the Roman Empire that it was simply abbreviated N-F-F-N-S-N-D. So you would see, you would walk by these uh, tombstones, and they would just have those letters inscribed on it. It's kind of like if you walk by a gravestone today and it has R.I.P. on it. It's the same sort of uh, idea. So one ancient philosopher uh, states this uh, annihilationist belief in the following way. He says, "...they fear that when the soul leaves the body, it no longer exists anywhere, and that on the day when man dies, it is destroyed and perishes. And when it leaves the body and departs from it, straight away it flies away." and is no longer anywhere scattering like a breath or smoke." So that's one option, is to say that the the Corinthians are denying afterlife entirely. I don't think that that's what's happening. I don't think these uh, Corinthians are denying the afterlife in general. I think it's very uh, clear that they are denying the resurrection in particular. So another option is to say that they are denying the resurrection of Christ. They're saying that Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead. I don't think that view holds up either because, as we'll see, Paul is going to base his entire argument on the fact that they do believe in the resurrection of Christ. So another view is to say that they're denying a future resurrection because they think that they've already experienced some sort of spiritual resurrection. Now, that's certainly a false teaching that had uh, taken hold in the early church. Paul talks about that sort of belief. In 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 2 says, But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. So you can see that the resurrection has already happened. It's been kind of re envisioned from this physical thing, which is what the Greek word anastasis means. It's been reenvisioned as this mere spiritual thing. And you see this even in, uh, in, in later uh, false teachings called Gnosticism, in a, uh, a document called the Gospel of Philip. not doesn't have anything to do with the actual biblical Philip, but a, uh, an early teaching document or an early Gnostic document called the Gospel of Phil, uh, Philip circulated, and it said, Those who assert one dies first and is then raised are wrong. If the resurrection is not received first while still alive... There is nothing to be received upon death. In other words, there certainly was a false teaching circulating in the early church that overly spiritualized the resurrection, that made it into something incorporeal, something that's immaterial. But also, I don't think that that's what's happening in Corinth. If you actually track down the entire argument through chapter 15, they aren't saying that our resurrection has already happened. They're saying there is no resurrection. So what I think is actually happening in Corinth is that some Corinthians are guilty of what's called syncretization. Right, what is synchronization? It, it, it's uh, when you attempt to combine these two worldviews, these two viewpoints, even though they're ultimately incompatible. If you read the Old Testament, you see that all over the place throughout the Old Testament. This was Israel's failure throughout her history. She would worship Yahweh, and then she would also worship other gods right? That's synchronization. It doesn't work, though, because part of inherent to the worship of Yahweh is the recognition that there is no other God, and so there was this trying to combine these two incompatible elements. Well, when it comes to the Corinthians, they were receiving the, the Christian gospel. We talked about that uh, last week in verses 1 through 11. They're receiving the Christian gospel, but the problem is that they were interpreting it through their pre-existing cultural lenses. In particular their pre-existing philosophical lenses. They had these presuppositions based on their cultural philosophy. You've probably heard of the Greek philosopher Plato, right? His theories on existence exerted a profound influence on ancient Greco-Roman culture. In particular, his views on this dichotomy between the body and the soul. According to Plato, there is this, this dualism that exists in which the material world and the immaterial world are actually in tension. There is this battle that's taking place between them. For Plato, what is ultimate, ultimate reality is spiritual. It's immaterial. And for Plato, on, on the other hand, the body, the material world, anything of substance was less real. It's less important. It's, it, it's wicked. It's evil. In fact, the body was seen as the prison of the soul. And the, the goal of, uh, of salvation, according to, Pla- to Platonic thought, was to be released from the body, like, a, like a, s- a snake sheds its skin. So the goal of humanity is to shed its body, to be free. The immortal, ethereal soul. And that was a common belief in the Roman Empire. And apparently, at least some of the Corinthians had embraced Christianity. They had said they believed the gospel. But they hadn't rid themselves of this dualistic, platonic thinking. They didn't deny that Christ had risen from the dead. They couldn't deny that. That's part of the essence of the gospel, as we read last week. But at the same time, they couldn't quite wrap their minds around the idea that we, too, will rise from the dead. They probably embraced this idea of some disembodied, eternal state. So I think that's what Paul is dealing with here in 1 Corinthians 15. And it might be possible for us to think of this and say, oh, those silly Corinthians, how could they be so influenced by Platonic thought? Unfortunately, this isn't just a problem for the early church. We talked about it even in the introduction. This is a problem for us today. In fact, I think if you were to survey most evangelicals and you ask them about their uh, eternal hope, I think an overwhelming majority of them would say something along the lines of going to heaven. Very few of them would mention the resurrection. Very few of them would uh, would mention the new earth. And in one sense, I'm not critiquing them, in one sense, heaven is our eternal home. After all, what happens to you when you die? You're spiritually in the presence of Christ. But that's not your final destination. Heaven is this rest stop on the road to resurrection and to eternal life on the new earth. That's the ultimate hope. When the new heavens will come down to earth and redeemed humanity, we'll live forever in resurrected bodies with our resurrected Lord. In other words, our hope isn't ethereal. It isn't uh, isn't immaterial. It's substantial. It's material. It isn't merely spiritual. It's physical as well. You see that all over the place throughout Scripture. You see it in the doctrine of creation. God didn't create humans As disembodied spirits, he created embodied souls. You see it in the doctrine of the incarnation of Christ. Christ didn't merely take on a human soul. He took on a human body as well. You see it in the doctrine of crucifixion. Christ didn't merely experience spiritual suffering, but physical suffering. You see it in the resurrection of Christ. Christ wasn't merely spiritually raised. He was physically raised. In other words, our hope is bodily. It's physical, it's material. Scripture screams this, and yet so many Christians seem ignorant of that reality. So as we read this problem in Corinth, don't read it dismissively. Don't read it with what uh, C.S. Lewis would call chronological snobbery, where you look and you think, oh, we're so advanced beyond that. They're so dumb, but we're so enlightened. Don't think you're above that, that tendency to disregard the, uh, the importance of not only Christ's resurrection, but of our own. So let's see how important this is as the passage develops. Let's look at verse 13. Paul says, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. This is is why I think that the Corinthians weren't necessarily denying Christ's resurrection. This passage wouldn't make any sense at at all if, if what he meant in the previous verse is that the the Corinthians are denying the resurrection of Christ. The Corinthians, when they got to this part of the letter, they would have just said, duh, that's what we said. Christ hasn't been raised. But if they're not denying the particular resurrection of Christ, but rather denying this future resurrection, or what theologians call the general resurrection of the dead, this is actually a brilliant response by Paul. What Paul is saying is that if you deny the universal principle of resurrection... If your philosophy doesn't allow for a physical resurrection, then by deductive logic, you also have to deny any particular instances of that kind of resurrection. If you deny the universal principle, you have to therefore deny any particular instance of that principle. For instance, if you say that elves don't exist, you can't believe in Legolas. Or if you say that wizards don't exist, you can't believe in Harry Potter or Gandalf or something like that. Likewise, if you say the resurrection philosophically, logically, it's impossible or it's incompatible with your other beliefs, then the resurrection of Christ is likewise incompatible. Because Christ is the pattern. He's the paradigm for our own resurrection. If you're philosophically opposed to the resurrection, then how can you believe in Christ's resurrection? That's Paul's point. If the body is wicked, if the body is really a prison for uh, for the soul, then you can't hold that Christ has a body. So the entire argument in chapter 15 is going to hinge on the fact that the Corinthians do believe that Christ was raised. But let's imagine for a second that Christ wasn't raised. If Christ wasn't raised, then neither did he die. If Christ wasn't raised, then he didn't die in the first place, and that would be a very big deal, right? Or he did die, but his body is still in the tomb, in which case you could just head on over to Jerusalem and see it for yourself. That's what Paul would have said here. Or he died and his body was stolen, stolen by the disciples. Disciples, by the way, who didn't get rich off of this lie, apparently but we were martyred for it. Or it was stolen by random grave robbers or stolen or eaten by dogs or something. We don't have time to explore those arguments. We've actually done an entire theological quipping class on uh, the resurrection as an apologetic. But suffice to say, each of those theories have massive logical holes. But, but let's say for the sake of argument that Christ himself wasn't raised. And the question therefore, therefore becomes, is that really that important? Is that a hill for us to die on? Or is that a belief in the, the resurrection of Christ, is that something that we can jettison? Is it peripheral? Is it tertiary? Is it something that we can kind of just agree to disagree on? Unfortunately, evangelicals seem a bit confused on that topic. In fact, uh, every couple of years or so, Ligonier uh, puts out a, a resource called The State of Theology, and a recent study found that more than one-third of evangelicals either disagreed or were unsure about the following statement. Biblical accounts of the physical resurrection of Jesus are completely accurate. This event actually occurred. More than one third of evangelicals either disagreed or were unsure about that statement. Less than half of the respondents strongly agreed with that statement. So it seems like, Not only are modern American Christians confused about about our own eternal hope, we're even confused about the foundations of Christianity itself, which is Christ's resurrection. Thankfully, Paul is going to spend the next few verses exploring that hypothetical for us, demonstrating that the resurrection of Christ isn't some tertiary, peripheral doctrine some insubstantial thing that we can kind of agree to disagree on. Churches can debate like they do millennial theories or whatever it might be. Instead, the resurrection of Christ is at the very center of our hope. It's an essential Christian doctrine. Let's see how he makes that case starting in verses 14 through 15. He says, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. So begin with this. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching and your faith is in vain. That word vain is also translated as empty. It's worthless. Why is their preaching in vain? Because they're preaching the resurrection. Why is our faith in vain? Because our faith is in the resurrected Lord. In other words, the gospel message isn't just that God loves you. We read the gospel message last week. At the heart of the gospel is the confession that Christ died and was raised. So if that isn't true, then the apostles are liars. Not only liars, they're blasphemers. They've misrepresented God, is Paul's language here. They have made this big fuss. And the implications of that big fu- fuss have been huge. They've torn apart Judaism the roman empire has been uh, has been shaken for no reason whatsoever if christ hasn't been raised there's nothing to see here if christ hasn't been raised in other words for paul for the apostles everything stands or falls on the assertion that god raised christ from the dead if that's actually happened then we have hope if not there is no hope it's empty it's vacuous it means nothing it's vain that's why, by the way, if you read the book of Acts, one of the requirements for the apostles was that they were witnesses to the resurrection. And that's why, if you read the book of Acts, every single sermon in the book of Acts talks about the resurrection of Christ. What was the apostolic message? Christ has been risen from the dead. What was Paul imprisoned for? He was pre- imprisoned for preaching the resurrection. Everything hinges on the reality of the resurrection of Christ, which makes Christianity a unique Among all the other religions of the world, Christianity is unique in that it is based on this objective historical event. There is historicity here. Resurrection is the Christian apologetic. More than anything else, if you want to know apologetics, the best thing to do is to study the resurrection. As we read last week, it wasn't only that one person saw the resurrected Christ or claimed to see the resurrected Christ. It wasn't that two people or three people, I'm not gonna count because it gets all the way to 500, all right? There are hundreds, and that's a powerful apologetic. This demonstration of the truth of the gospel. How does that compare to other religions? We'll take Buddhism. The entire uh, Buddhist religion is built upon the visions of one man, Buddha who starves himself for weeks on end and he has a vision. I starved for weeks on end. I had a vision too. It doesn't mean you should follow me. Or take the example of Islam. Right? Muhammad receives a vision in a cave. No one else is around. In fact, when he goes home, he tells his wife, I think I've seen a demon. That's what he actually thinks the vision is actually for. She's the one who actually convinces him that he's actually heard from Allah. But you just have to take his word for it because no one else is there in that cave. Or Joseph Smith. No one else has seen those golden plates. Christianity is unique among all the religions of the world, and that is founded upon historicity. It's founded upon an objective event. It's founded upon the eyewitness testimony of hundreds. <coughs> Excuse me. And without that event, the whole thing crumbles. It's kind of like playing Jenga. If you ever play the game Jenga, those little building blocks that you pull out, and you get to a point where it becomes obvious that you can move certain blocks without the tower falling, but others become impossible to move without knocking it over. Christianity certainly has doctrines that we can debate and disagree over. There is a right and wrong answer on those things, but the church has debated them for centuries, for millennia, certain aspects of eschatology or ecclesiology, for instance. But the resurrection isn't one of those. The resurrection is one of those blocks that if you pull the tower will necessarily crumble it will inherently crumble there is no christianity without the resurrection of christ let's keep going and see why not verses 16 through 17. for if the dead are not raised not even christ has been raised and if christ has not been raised your faith is futile and you are still in your sins i think it's interesting just about every easter You can actually look for this there will be some (laughs) publication like national geographic or time magazine just about every easter they'll interview someone some alleged scholar some alleged pastor about the resurrection and he or she will say something to the effect of even if the resurrection didn't happen i would still be a christian you know who wouldn't be a christian if the resurrection didn't happen paul me hopefully you Occasionally, you'll read something even about some, how some archaeologist says that they've actually found the bones of Christ, which is big if true, right? I, I read a supposed pastor who wrote this about an archaeologist finding the bones of Christ. He says, If the bones of, Christ, uh, of Jesus were to be discovered, <coughs> it would be a big finding. It's the understatement of the, the year. It would cause us to adjust our understanding of Christianity, yes. But ultimately, the truth and power of Christianity would remain undisturbed. We would still have all of Jesus' teaching, and we would have all of his stories, and we would have his wonderful example of love for the outcast. And even though Easter wouldn't be about the physical resurrection of Jesus, we would go on celebrating the example and testimony of this great man of God who lives on in our hearts and who inspires us to be kind to others. Even if the tomb wasn't empty, our hearts would still be full. Now that someone who calls themselves a pastor would say that is infuriating. That myriad others who would call themselves Christians would sympathize with that is even worse. It's drivel. It's a therapeutic, moralistic deism. It's certainly not Christianity. Why do I care what Jesus says if he's not actually God? Why do I care about his great teachings? Why do I care about his great example? Why do I care about his love? Why, do I, why would I care about any of those things if he's not actually risen from the dead? Christianity says that if the resurrection didn't happen, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Again, everything crumbles when you remove the resurrection. So why is that? Why would your faith be futile? Why would you still be in your sins? Well, think all the way back to the book of Genesis. Even before sin entered into the world, there was a promise or a curse, if you will. There was this link between sin and death. To sin is to die, or to use New Testament terms, the wages of sin is death. There is this inseparable relationship between sin and and death. So if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, get this, then death wins. And if death wins, then sin wins. And if sin wins, then the kingdom hasn't come. And if the kingdom hasn't come, then we're still under the dominion of sin and Satan. The early church father Irenaeus said it like this, So if he was not born, neither did he die. And if he did not die, neither was he raised from the dead. And if he was not raised from the dead, death is not conquered nor its kingdom destroyed. And if death is not conquered, how are we to ascend to life, having fallen under death from the beginning? So if the resurrection isn't true, it doesn't matter. What are we doing here on a Sunday? Why did you get up early? Why aren't you at home preparing for football games and so forth? But if the resurrection is true, if Christ is raised, then that is a demonstration of the sufficiency of the cross. That's a demonstration of the victory of God over the grave and over sin. By the way, that's why as we'll see throughout the rest of the chapter, our own resurrection is so important. This passage isn't only about Christ's resurrection, it's setting the stage It's an apologetic. He's arguing for the fact that surely Christ has been raised as an apologetic for how we will be raised, which is what the rest of the chapter is going to be about. But this is why our own resurrection is so important, because if we don't rise from the grave, then death also wins. I don't think most modern evangelicals have really thought about that. I don't think they really understand this. If our eternal hope is simply disembodied eternal life in heaven, like a lot of evangelicals think, then God doesn't actually win. God isn't actually ultimately sovereign and king. Let me give you an illustration of what I mean. Imagine that, that someone were to steal your car. Someone steals your car. Thankfully, a few days later, the police catch him, and they call you, and they say, hey, come to the station, come pick up your things. You show up at the police station, and when you get there, though, they just hand you your radio and your tires. So you ask, what about the rest of the car? And the police says, we're just going to let them keep that. Is that justice? Of course not. Well, that's exactly what it's like when people think that God just wants to redeem our souls or our spirits, but not our bodies. If that's the case, then death wins. Death keeps our bodies. And in that sense, it gets to boast over God. In the end, for all of eternity, death wins. Death boasts. The problem is, that's the opposite of what Scripture says. The Gospel declares that death doesn't win. In fact, as the, uh, the poet John Dunn writes, death shall be no more, death thou shalt die. Or as the Apostle Paul writes later in 1 Corinthians 15, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. In some sense, that's already happened, that's already been put into place. <coughs> but in another, it's yet to come. The classic analogy uh, of this, you've heard this before if you've been here for a while, is D-Day, World War II. The moment the Allies won D-Day, the war was really essentially over. Essentially over, but not practically over. <coughs> and the same is true when it comes to death's destruction. Essentially. The death and resurrection of Christ has disarmed and defeated death. But its final defeat, its full defeat, won't come until the end. When it gives up its dead, there's this beautiful poetic picture in the book of Revelation where death itself has to give up its dead. And death itself is thrown into the lake of fire. That's why Christians believe not only in the resurrection of the just, but also the resurrection of the unjust. The just to eternal life, the unjust to eternal condemnation. So death keeps no one. Death itself is judged and thrown into the lake of fire. So again, the resurrection isn't inconsequential. Whether ours or Christ's, as Paul writes in Romans, Christ was raised for our justification. There is this link between justification and resurrection. If Christ was not resurrected, you are not justified. You're still in your sins. Without the resurrection, there is no justification. And if there's no justification, there's no hope. You're under condemnation. You see that in verse 18. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Now, throughout the Greco-Roman world and a lot of ancient Near Eastern cultures, sleep was actually a common metaphor for death. But from a Christian perspective, it was was even a, a more fitting image. Why is that? Well, because the, the Christian expectation of, of death is that you will awaken. You will awaken to the resurrection, which is the image of sleep, right? If you laid in bed every night and you genuinely believed, if I fall asleep, I will die. You probably have a sleep disorder, right? You probably wouldn't sleep all that well. There's this general expectation, most nights, unless you have some sort of weird paranoia or something like that. Most nights, you lay in bed and you think, I'm going to wake up in the morning, or you don't think about it at all. <coughs> that's the Christian expectation. When I die, I will be raised. There is this expectation. As the person who sleeps expects to wake, so the Christian who dies expects to be awoken, raised to new life. By the way, just, just as an aside, this is not a rant, but as an aside, that's why most of church history until relatively recently, has been opposed to the practice of cremation. Is it sinful to cremate your loved ones? No, absolutely not. Is God somehow limited in His ability to piece you back together if you've been cremated? Absolutely not. But is cremation the best picture, the best metaphor, the best illustration of our eternal hope? No. (coughs) So early Christians opposed cremation because it was reflective of the views of, of, of pagan cultures. Views that implied either that death uh, kind of ended things, which is kind of annihilation. There was, uh, there was nothing beyond that, or it was just kind of immortality of the, the, the detached soul. The body was inconsequential. And because the body was unimportant in pagan theology, but not in Christianity, so burial was this custom, this tradition that was practiced as a sign of the importance and the, the, the future hope of resurrection. So again, that doesn't mean that you can't be cremated. It doesn't mean it's sinful. <coughs> it does mean there is a pattern and a principle there that I would encourage you to think through. But according to Paul, you either hope in a future, future resurrection or you don't hope at all. That's what Paul's saying. If Christ hasn't been raised, then death isn't defeated. And if death isn't defeated, then sin isn't defeated. And if death and sin aren't defeated, then we're still condemned. And if you're condemned, then when you die, you have no hope. You simply perish. But if Christ is raised, we too will be raised. And therefore we may grieve, but as Paul writes elsewhere, not as those who have no hope. So now we reach the apex of the argument, verse 19, which says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Now, I think we read that today, and I think for a lot of us, it doesn't really resonate with us. I think a lot of us, if we were honest, we would say, even if Christianity weren't true, I've had a pretty good life. I've got a good job. I've got a healthy family. I've got a few dollars in the bank. I've got food on the table. Things are pretty good. And that's a blessing. And I'm not telling you you have to be you know, apologetic for that. But consider this from the perspective of Paul. Paul's beaten, he's shipwrecked, he's stoned, not like high on something, but he's actually literally hit with stones, left for dead. He's betrayed by his people, he's ultimately martyred. If there is nothing beyond this life, that's tragic, that's pitiable. Paul certainly wasn't living his best life now. In fact, if you're living your best life now, that's really bad news because it means you're going to hell. If Christ isn't raised, then the world is right. The cross is utter foolishness, as we read earlier in 1 Corinthians. And we're hopeless fools. But if Christ is raised, then everything is different. The cross is the wisdom of God, and we have this deep and abiding hope tethered to something that's secure, something that's certain, something that's unchanging. In other words, your eschatology, yes, there are aspects of your eschatology that are peripheral, what you believe about the rapture or millennium or something like that, but your eschatology in general, my, uh, my eschatology professor in seminary said, here's what I want you to know about eschatology. I don't care that you know all the different millennial theories and, and so forth. He said, here's what I want you to know. Eschatology is about the fact that Jesus is returning and you are going to resurrect. And that reality isn't inconsequential. That means everything. That is essential for you. That changes absolutely everything about your life if you actually understand that. So I want to end by asking you a few diagnostic questions in light of this passage to see if that's actually taken root. It's kind of like uh, you ever drop a a quarter back in the days when people used to carry quarters. You take a quarter, you drop it in the, the vending machine, and sometimes it wouldn't fall, and you have to kind of hit it, and then it falls I think for a lot of us, that's the gospel for us, or that's the reality of the resurrection, or whatever it might be. It's it's, it's within us, but it's not quite fallen. So there's no fruit that's come forth from that. So I want to ask these diagnostic questions to see, has that truth, has that doctrine, has this reality actually fallen into your heart, and is it bearing fruit or not? First question, just to make sure who I'm talking to. If you're a Christian, then you believe this, but here's The question, number one, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God risen from the dead? Not just that he's spiritually alive in your hearts, but he's actually physically resurrected. Do you believe that? If not, it's okay. Confess that. We'd love to chat with you about that. Come up, find one of the elders or staff members or deacons or someone afterwards. Talk to us. Number two, do you truly believe, do you trust, do you rest in the belief that you too will be raised from the dead? You see this language in Scripture that Christ's resurrection is the down payment for our own. Christ's resurrection is the first fruits of this future harvest. So do you hope in that? Do you rest in that? Does that give you comfort? Do you believe in that? Third, if you do believe in that, if you do believe in Christ's resurrection and your own future resurrection, how does that influence your view of death? There's this interesting passage in the book of Hebrews that talks about how the devil holds us captive to the fear of death. And that one of the, the benefits of Christ's death and resurrection is that it frees us. We don't have to be captive to death. We know what's after death. So does the resurrection encourage you? Does it comfort you when you think of death? Or do you still feel paralyzed? Do you still feel enslaved when you think about death? Fourth, do you live a life that would in any way be able to resonate with Paul saying, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we should be pitied? I'm not implying that you need to go out and get yourself martyred. But I'm suggesting that there should be something distinct about your life. I'm suggesting that you should be denying yourself certain pleasures, certain comforts for the sake of the gospel. Is there anything about your life that would actually look foolish to the world? Are you laying up for yourselves treasures on earth or treasures in heaven? Do you forsake sin? Do you walk in submission to Scripture as a sign of your hope in a life to come? You'll see that connection often throughout Scripture. Our eschatology drives our ethic. Because of this future resurrection and the hope that we have of that, it leads us to lives of uh, faithfulness and obedience now. So can you resonate with Paul saying, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we should be pitied? Final question, how does the reality of your own resurrection transform the way that you think about suffering? Or does it transform the way that you think about suffering? According to Scripture, the resurrection is really what sustains us in the midst of suffering. It's what fuels our hope. So I want to ask, do you find comfort in the resurrection as you face sufferings? I want to end by reading a section from Romans 8. My favorite chapter in all of Scripture. And when I ask, can you resonate with this? Romans 8, 18 through 25. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it. how does he refine, uh, define that? The redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Notice the ultimate cure for suffering. The ultimate redemption is not just of our souls, but of our bodies. That's resurrection. That's what fuels us. That's the basis for our hope, and that's what we'll spend the next few weeks talking about, this hope in which we were saved. Let's pray. (laughs) Father, I thank you that you have loved us and you've given your son for us. You've given him in the incarnation, you've given him in crucifixion, you've given him in resurrection And one day you will give him to us in the Perusia, his return, where we too will be resurrected. And so I thank you for the promise that we have. Not a promise of annihilation, not a promise of disembodied, ethereal, immortal existence. But the promise of resurrection, that one day Christ will return. The new heavens will come to the new earth. And you will live with us forever in your son as we inhabit resurrected bodies so i pray that that would fuel us that it would make us a people who are passionate to be faithful and obedient and people who think rightly of death and suffering and on and on we could go pray that your spirit would help us we ask these things because you're good and you do good so we ask in christ's name amen